Stacey Harbaugh with your local news, coming to you live from my home via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Former Governor Tony Earle, a leading voice for conservation and good governments even after leaving office, died today at age 86. According to a press release from current Governor Tony Evers, the 41st governor of Wisconsin suffered a stroke over the weekend and spent his remaining days surrounded by loved ones. The former governor served Wisconsin in many ways. He was elected to the state assembly from 1969 to 1974, becoming majority leader in 1972, and later served as secretary of the Department of Administration and the Department of Natural Resources. His legacy in office is known for his conservation. He held positions on several environmental boards and had the honor of the Governor Earl Peshtigo River State Forest being named after him. Governor Evers signed an executive order ordering flags to be flown at half-mast immediately as an honor to Earl's service. The family of former University of Wisconsin Chancellor Rebecca Blank will hold a memorial service for her on March 4th. Blank, who was 67 years old, died last Friday of pancreatic cancer. The service will begin at 2 p.m. at the First Congregational United Church of Christ, 1609 University Avenue, the Capital Times reports. A live stream will also be available. A reception will follow at the Union South's University Hall, 1308 West Dayton Street. Blank's family encourages those attending to wear red in her honor. Natural Resources Board member Greg Kamirsky wants the state to spend more to maintain public lands. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Kamirsky shared a draft resolution with the state DNR board to seek adequate funding for habitat management. The price of land management has increased over the past decade from $7.1 million in 2011 to $11.2 million in 2022. Additionally, the state has added more properties through the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, which was created to preserve wildlife lands, fisheries, and expand outdoor recreation. It's currently funded at $33 billion each year through 2026. DNR board members will share their thoughts and are expected to vote on the resolution at their next meeting in April. Wisconsin adults could have beer, wine, and spirits delivered to their door under a proposal in the state legislature, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. A bipartisan coalition in the Assembly and Senate is behind the plan, which would end a requirement that consumers enter licensed retail establishments to buy booze. Wisconsin is one of only eight states that prohibit phone or online orders from vendors other than wineries with direct shippers' permits. Opposition to the proposal is concerned the bill could increase underage drinking by passing liability from a cashier to a delivery person. Senator Dewey Strobel, the author, an author of the bill, has said that ID checking requirements and driver training would be put in place and go beyond other alcohol regulations. The Wisconsin Historical Society has found temporary space for its exhibits while construction occurs at the New History Center at 30 North Carroll Street. 
the new center will be able to host 200,000 visitors annually. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that in the meantime, the WHS can host author talks, pop-up exhibits, and more at its temporary location at 1 South Pinckney Street. The center is looking to partner with organizations to host pop-ups in other regions as well. And the election results of the city snowplow new names are in. The city of Madison's hotly contested snowplow equipment naming election has concluded with over 3,000 votes for each of the winning snowplows. The contest was hosted by Wisconsin SaltWise, a coalition that works to reduce salt pollution. And the winning names are Saltimus Prime, an axle brine truck that's more than meets the eye. Snowby Juan Kenobi, an elegant bike path plow that's one with the force. Seymour Pavement, a name that's maybe more fitting for an optometrist than a plow. And, drumroll please, Dolly Plowton, a plow truck that works more than just nine to five. And now on to today's top stories. For many older and disabled Wisconsinites, an at-home caregiver is needed even to perform the task of getting out of bed in the morning. But as Wisconsin's populations trend older and older, the number of caregivers is continuing to shrink, leading one city alder to sound the alarm. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. It's not a shortage, but it's a crisis. That's District 12 Alder Barbara Vetter, who is sounding the alarm on the lack of home caregivers for disabled and older adults. According to a recent study by the Survival Coalition, a group of organizations that advocates for Wisconsinites with disabilities, around 40 percent of the state's caregivers have left the workforce entirely, meaning that those who would need help with their day-to-day lives are left out to dry. Melanie Cairns is a managing attorney with Disability Rights Wisconsin, a nonprofit advocacy group for people with disabilities. She says that across the state, the lack of qualified caregivers is having serious consequences. Caregiver vacancies in Wisconsin residential facilities have risen from 13 percent in 2016 to 24 percent in 2020 to an unprecedented level of 28 percent in 2022. And a recent survey showed that over 18,000 people in Wisconsin sought services from a long-term care provider in 2022, but were denied or delayed services due to staff shortages. According to the Wisconsin Assisted Living Association in a 2022 report, the over 23,000 open caregiving jobs far outpaced the supply of people ready to work in those jobs. And with an aging population, there's an increasing need for caregivers. Even as more people in the state are forecasted to hit age 60 and above in the next few decades, Wisconsin is projected to be short nearly 20,000 registered nurses by 2040 to support the aging population. Herself in a wheelchair, Vetter says that the issue is personal because without help, she isn't able to get in and out of bed. Vetter says that while she has family members that are able to help her, she says she has seen others who simply don't have that option. I I have a friend who is now living in a hospital because she can't find anyone to help her at home in a hospital and she's not sick. But that's where she gets cares to her tears taken care of. She's quadriplegic like I am and needs these cares to keep her okay and keep her healthy and 
get, being able to get her up in her wheelchair and all of that, uh, going to bed at night, you can't find people to help you living in your homes because there's no one out there. In October of 2020, the state's task force on caregiving released a report outlining some of the causes of the shortage. One issue is Wisconsin's aging population. In 2015, Wisconsinites 65 and older made up around 15 percent of the state's total population. But the report estimates that by 2040, that number will jump to around 24 percent. Another issue causing the shortage is caregiver pay. According to the report, the average hourly wage for a personal care worker in Wisconsin is just $12 an hour. The bulk of caregiver pay in Wisconsin comes from Medicaid. Currently, state law provides caregiving agencies around $19 per hour per patient. That money is then spread between caregiver pay, insurance, and administrative costs. Vetter has put forward a few solutions that the city can implement to address the shortage, such as reaching out to universities and neighborhoods across the city to recruit caregivers and providing free child care and bus passes to caregivers. One of the most important things the city can do, she says, is to tell the state and federal government that they need help and to expand Medicaid to adequately pay caregivers. In 2021, Governor Tony Evers called a special session of the state legislature to accept a one-time bump of $1 billion to expand Medicaid in Wisconsin using federal COVID relief funds. According to the Associated Press, the Republican-led legislature shot down the funding, with the state Senate meeting for under 10 seconds to discuss the proposal. Republicans at the time said that they shot down the funding because they were worried the federal money would dry up, forcing the state to cover the costs. Governor Evers has included multiple proposals in his proposed 2023 budget to address the caregiver shortage, including raising caregiver pay and to create new tax credits for qualified family caregivers. The city's Disability Rights Commission is holding a virtual hearing this evening to hear from community members about their experiences with the caregiver shortage and to discuss possible solutions. That meeting is taking place over Zoom and began at 5 o'clock. But for Vetter, she says that all of the initiatives the city has made to make the city more accessible, none of that matters if she can't get help leaving the house. If you can't get help out of bed for the day, in the morning. It doesn't matter if the city county building, the restaurants, the theaters, all these entities are wheelchair accessible. It doesn't matter. If you don't have the help you need to get up in your wheelchair and get going for the day, you will not get there. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. If you or someone you know works remotely, you're not alone. A recent report released by the Wisconsin Policy Forum, indicates that the number of people working remotely is still rising three years into the pandemic. But the opportunity to work from home doesn't come equally. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story. Three years into the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of people working remotely in the Madison area is the third highest across the Midwest, according to a report released this morning by the Wisconsin Policy Forum. The catch? the rise in remote work hasn't been spreading equally across the state. The report finds that although about 15% of Wisconsin workers are working remotely, not everyone has the same level of access to those jobs. Where you live can dictate how easy it is to find a remote job. So can your industry. In Dane and Ozaki counties, the largest portion of the economy is devoted to industries that can easily adapt to remote work. 
such as information technology and financial services. Both Dane County and Ozaki County have a higher percentage of remote workers compared to the statewide average. Meanwhile, in counties where manufacturing jobs make up the largest portion of the economy, such as Rock County and Dodge County, remote work is below the state average. Joe Peterangelo is a senior researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum and has worked on this report. He says that remote work is benefiting some, but not all the people who may need it most. Looking at it from an equity standpoint, you see that the sectors that tend to allow for remote and even hybrid work tend to employ people that have higher levels of education, tend to earn higher incomes, have better access to benefits like health care. In contrast, the report notes that industries less adaptable to remote work tend to be lower paying by comparison and are more likely to have greater representation of Black and Hispanic workers. A 2020 study by the National Bureau of Economic Research estimated that around two-thirds of jobs in industries like IT, finance, and other industries found in Wisconsin's more metropolitan areas are jobs which can be done remotely, while less than one-fourth of jobs in manufacturing, agriculture, and construction can be done remotely. Peter Angelo says this could worsen existing divides. And then we also saw a national study that showed that workers who are required to be on site for their jobs exclusively are more likely to be Black or Hispanic than those who are able to work remotely, partially, or all of the time. So there's some inequities there that um, we could be adding on to existing inequities that are already you know, built in. On the other hand, Increasing remote work can lessen inequalities for women who are disproportionately more likely to be caregivers by improving the balance between work and family. Recent studies have found that working remotely can cut down on the individual commuting cost related to gas and parking, as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions from personal vehicles. Other studies have found increasing levels of employee disengagement and team dysfunction with remote work, with inconclusive results on productivity. Though COVID-19 caused remote work to spike, the overall trend of remote work in Wisconsin has been rising for years before that. The recent report by the Wisconsin Policy Forum speculates that, if this trend continues, it may lead to a change in how downtown economies are structured. This trend could lead to a future where fewer buildings downtown are allocated to offices and businesses, and more space is allocated towards multi-unit housing. In contrast, residential neighborhoods could see an increase in businesses and higher real estate prices. Peter Angelo says that this is something that he and his team have already started to see. There was some really interesting research recently in New York City showing how few employees are going into offices on Mondays and Fridays and how that's impacting their spending in Manhattan. And, you know, basically it's having a longer term effect on the businesses that depend on those workers. So, So we're going to have to keep watching this to see how that's affected. Um, But some of that demand um, has been maybe shifted from the downtowns and job centers to other neighborhoods and areas where those employees live. Also in the report, Madison is ranked 22nd nationally in the number of people working remotely, punching above its weight for being the 81st most populous city in the nation. The city of Milwaukee, meanwhile, is ranked 45th for remote work despite being ranked 30th in population. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. 
It's 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, the city of Madison released their latest crash data, showing that for the second year in a row, traffic fatalities fell in the city of Madison. Earlier this week, Dane County released their own crash data report, showing that while the total number of crashes fell, the number of fatalities from those crashes actually rose. To talk about this report, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Cheryl Whitke, the executive director of Safe Communities Madison and Dane County. Earlier this week, the Dane County Traffic Safety Commission, with the nonprofit Safe Communities Madison and Dane County, released their annual traffic crash report for Dane County in 2022. That report found that while the overall number of injury-causing crashes is down in Dane County, death from those crashes are on the rise. To tell me more, I'm joined now by Cheryl Whitkey, Executive Director with Safe Communities. Cheryl, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nate. And now let's start with just the basic facts. What is your what is this report about and what did you find? Yeah, so the Traffic Safety Commission is a is a group of about 50 organizations that are committed to reducing traffic crashes and we meet quarterly and then once a year we also issue a traffic safety sort of fatality review looking at all the contributing factors uh, to the the crash deaths that we saw in Dane County. So we announced uh, this week, as you mentioned, that we saw a significant loss in life and everyone is a tragedy. We lost 44 people uh, in 1,770 crashes uh, last year. And so it's an alarming trend. Uh, it's We hope that especially today with the weather being so awful and the fact that we've seen the trend of, of traffic crashes and fatalities increasing during, you know, inclement weather, that this is a, sort of a sad reminder to, to drive defensively and safe out there. And why is this happening? Why is the overall number of crashes going down, but the number of fatalities from those crashes going up? Well, we don't know exactly. We, we, we have speculated, basically, that since COVID, there were fewer people on the road, you know, more people were telecommuting, it's it's reversing a little bit now, of course. More people are on the roads than they were during COVID. But we saw fewer crashes, but more serious crashes, perhaps because when there are more cars on the road, you know, it's just a there are barriers to driving excessively fast or recklessly. So that the trend started basically in 2020 when we saw this increase in more serious crashes, life-threatening crashes. Um, and we're still seeing that to a certain extent. It's not as bad as it was during COVID, but we're, we're, we think that, you know, that this is still a contributing factor. And did you see any other trends in the report? Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, we saw a, an increase in red light running and uh, stop sign running. Again, that it could also have been related, connected to the inclement weather, uh, you know, if people can't necessarily stop or have a slower um, reaction time. And, and then as a result of the weather, maybe they, they blew through those, those lights. But that's, uh, that is a, something that we saw. We also saw last year we had 13 people lose their lives in crashes when weather 
negatively affected road conditions, and this was compared to the five-year average of seven uh, in those five prior years. So it's it's a it's a concern when we see that, um, you know, compared to multiple years, we see a crash in in one year increase. Now, just last week, the city of Madison put out uh, a similar report that saw very different results. They found that traffic fatalities actually dropped for the second year in a row within the city of Madison. Uh, Why do you think that is? Why do you think traffic fatalities are dropping in Madison but rising across the rest of Dane County? Well, I I really congratulate the Vision Zero um, initiative that, that the mayor has initiated. I mean, I think they've done great work. Also, I think we've seen more crashes, more fatal crashes in rural parts of the, of the county than we have in Madison. And that's part of what's driving this. You know, and it's that, that can be a common feature, even though there's a, a larger population in the city of Madison. More rural roads that, with higher speeds, you know, maybe, you know, two lane highways uh, that are older and, and don't have the same level of safety features can sometimes contribute more to uh, an increased rate in crashes. So that, I think, is probably part of what what might be driving this. And now, looking at this issue of rising traffic fatalities, uh, is, is there anything that can be done to address this trend? I think it, I mean, so much of this is driven uh, by driver behavior. I mean, you know, clearly weather is a contributing factor, but if, if uh, we know that it's going to be Dangerous conditions outside, you know, one option is, if you can, is not to drive. Another really important thing to keep in mind is, you, you know, you want to make sure your win- your windows are clear of snow and ice. Again, impairment, so if drinking and driving in inclement weather, slows, I mean, it slows your reaction time. You may overestimate your abilities um, if, you, if you're impaired. So that's an, that can be another contributing factor. And then you know, just slowing down, wearing seatbelts, making sure kids are in the back seat and restrained properly. Those are all ways that we can, you know, really take proactive steps to prevent serious crashes. I mean, it, it sometimes crashes happen because of some, you know, some other drivers, you know, inattentiveness and that sort of thing. But I think if we can be responsible for our own, you know, sort of behavior and safety in our own cars, that can help. And, and Cheryl, do you have just any final thoughts on this report that you would like to share with me that you think are important? Yeah, I think it's just really important not to lose sight of the fact that really these deaths are preventable. And so I think each of us, if, if we could take that responsibility to, you know, keep ourselves and others safe, you know, I think we go a long way to seeing these numbers reduced. So, you know, just a, just a reminder to keep your own safety and those around you in mind when you're driving. I've been talking with Cheryl Whitkey, Executive Director with Safe Communities Madison and Dane County, about the new report on traffic crashes and fatalities in Dane County. You can read the full report online at safecommunity.net. Cheryl, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's 6.33 p.m. and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for tuning in. This week on Out of the Box, host D-Star talks with writer and filmmaker Raphael Ragland. He shares how he overcame his obstacles in prison and his journey to become a filmmaker.
What's up, everybody? This your boy, D-Star. And I'm Raphael Raglan, you know, the Devonier. <laughs> <laughs> and you watch your Out of the Box podcast. Yo, what's up, man? Man, what's up, man? It's good to be here. I'm glad you reached out, man. You know what I'm saying? You got me feeling all comfortable. And, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh, he got pillows. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I ain't been on the set where um, it was pillows for the back, you know? <laughs> so thanks for the pillows. Well, I'm glad that you like the decor and everything, oh, yeah, man. Yeah, it's got it re- looking real nice in here. You know what I'm saying? Right. So for the people that don't know you, man, can you kind of introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us where you're from and how'd you get started in oh, filmmaking? Yeah. For sure, for sure. Well, you know, um, I'm Raphael Raglan. Um, I am a writer, director, um, producer. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, you know, but I claim Madison, Wisconsin, because I've been here so long. This is where I got my start at. Um, 608. Yeah, 608. I left Chicago when I was a teenager. Got into a lot of, you know, rap music and videos and stuff like that. Took me a little vacation, you know, uh, <laughs> took a little vacation doing the wrong things, you know, right. so ended up on the wrong side of the fence. Just like that, on the wrong side of the fence, it was like a vacation stay. And, hey, I got out of there and decided that, you know, I wanted to do something with my life. Right. Well, while I was in there, I started writing stories and telling stories, man, and letting people read my stories while they was in there. It was like, hey, hey, man, what, what the rest of it at? What the rest of it right. at? You know what I'm saying? You know, I was like, man, you kind of aggressive. Like, they want to read it. I'm like, what the rest of it at? What? I'm like, I'm going to write tonight, okay? You know so anyway, um, you know, one thing led to another, and then I got out, and I was like, um, I got to do something different, man, with my life. I started something that's called... 608 TV. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we started. 608 TV, baby. Yeah, so, you know, I, and then I met a lot, a lot. It was like, it was targeted around, you know, inner city talent, you know what I'm saying? And we'll take our camera out and just start, you know, wherever they was at, wherever, you know, people was at, we was there filming it and, and letting people know what was going on in the town far as entertainment, you know? Right. And that's when, you know, back then, you know, that's been a while, man. That's when I met you. Right. And you was doing your thing, you know, um, we kind of connected, and I started bringing the camera out and limos. You know, see, you had pillows then, too. Right. You had me, you had me in a limo and pillows, you know what I'm saying? So right. You and these pillows, you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so we started 608 TV, man, and um, we did that for a while. It, you know, it came, you know, really known in the, you know, in the 608. Right. And then I decided, man, um, I wanted to do something different. I went out, and I started on a set with um, Spike Lee. You know, right, where he was doing something, and I went out to New York, and my sister. Wait, 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 wait! You jumping too fast. You jumping too fast <laughs> because you did a movie before that. Yes, I did. Yeah, I did do a movie. Shut before the that. whole city down. down. Yes, you're right. You know what I'm saying? And put the whole city on on the map. You right. know, honestly, you know, it was crazy because this is when like. First, it was MySpace. Right. You know what I'm saying? Back then, it was like, you know, when I first started doing like the 608 TV, it was like MySpace. Right. Facebook was just coming out, but we all wasn't, you know what I'm saying? We wasn't like in tune as, you know, with Facebook. So I was like on MySpace. But Facebook is where it really cracked off yeah. with, with the 608 TV. TV. Right, that's what I'm saying. Because, yeah. you know, MySpace was like music and stuff like right. that. And then, you know, Facebook came out. So I'm like, hey. You know, you know, you didn't really know, but I'm like, I could put videos on here. People are gonna watch right, it. Right. You know what I'm saying? They could see my. On you know, MySpace, you could only put so many pictures, pictures up. Right, right. With Facebook, it was like, man, you could put so many pictures up, man. You could put a video you know up. What? We like, right. damn. I'm like, oh, I'm on. I'm awesome. Right. So then, you know, like I said, Facebook came, and I'm like, I'm starting learning Facebook. So you know, one day, man, I just, you know, because I'm, I'm one of those people that's like. It's just spontaneous, you know what I'm saying? So one day I woke up from 608 TV and I said, I'm going to do a movie. So I get on Facebook and I say, hey, I'm going to do a movie. 
man, you should have seen all the laughing. People laugh out loud. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It was like, do a movie? Man, all right, bro. You know what I'm saying? You know, I mean, I didn't know anything about, you know, doing a movie, but I just felt like I can do it, you know? I can do it. I can yeah. take this camera. And you classically trained, too. So you had the skills to do, do the it. movie. Right. Yeah. So I said, man. And, but a lot, not a lot of people know that though about you, though. Right, right, you know right. I mean? right. We actually went to the same school, not yeah, at the same time, time but, but we did go, you know, we both graduated from Madison Media Institute. Right. So, man, and that's what I said, man. I said, I'm going to do a movie. They laughed. Then I started doing auditions for the movie. And don't get me wrong, bro. Um, I didn't have the money to, I didn't know anything about the quality of, you know, cameras and lenses. Right. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, I just decided, like, I had a camera. I'm going to do a movie. You know what I'm saying? I took the camera, started running and gunning, you know, right. grabbing people, putting, you know, because I, I knew how to write stories. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, I, I was always good at stories. So I, I did the movie. And then when I got done with the movie, I said, what the heck I'm going to do with this movie? And so I was like, so what am I going to do with this movie, man? So um, next thing you know, I'm like, I started going to theaters. Like, can I put my movie in here? They looking yeah. at you know, You know, I went to the big studio, um, theaters first, and they looked at me like, Nah, nah, <laughs> yeah, that ain't going. That ain't gonna work, bro. Right. So you know, I ran across a little, um, you know, theater where they where they get all the older movies. In Southtown, right? No, it was over on or Marcus Theater on yeah, the west, on the west side. Oh, yeah. I went to the movie theater. Yep. I mean, I went I to the movie pictures. premiere. I Listen, got pictures. Man, I got pictures. The place was sold out. <laughs> it was so sold out. Let me tell you, man. I let me tell you that. So when I said that, I was like, okay. What am I to do with this movie? So I talked to the owners of the, of the theater, and I was like, "Can I put my movie here?" And they was like, "Yeah, you can. You can rent the place. You know what I'm saying?" So now they charge, you know. So I'm thinking they charge a dollar, uh, two dollars, or something to get in to watch movies. So I'm like, "How much y'all gonna uh, rent me the place for?" They was like, "Give us five hundred dollars." I'm like, "Man, you only charge a dollar to two dollars. <laughs> it ain't no five hundred seats in here." You know what I'm saying? I'm like, oh. "So I said, how many?" So now check this out. I said. How many, how many seats in there? He said, 377. I said, really? I'm like, okay. So I give him the $500. Right. Now I'm thinking like, man, I got 377 seats. I don't know, 377 people. people you know what right. I'm saying? I said, only person going to come to this movie is the people that's in it and they right, family. Right, you know what right, I'm saying? Right, right. So I'm like, but you know, somehow we got the word out there, bro. And this is no lie. You was dead at night. Oh, yeah. Man. And it was a red carpet. It was... <laughs> Photographers there. It was limo. It was a real life movie. Man, and then in Madison. <laughs> that lively interview was D Star talking with Madison filmmaker Raphael Ragland. Now you're going to want to hear the full episode on the Oddity Box podcast, and you can find that wherever you find your podcasts. This week on the House Always Wins construction educators and home improvement influencers John and Allie untangle the great gas stove kerfuffle of 2023. Spoiler alert, you will get to keep your gas stove. I call it housework because it's light work. What you, what you gonna do? I'm gonna throw sheets, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can come and learn cool stuff about your house. And we love cool stuff. Today, we're endeavoring to explain the recent gas stove kerfuffle you may have heard about. Oh, yeah. Let me set the stage. Mm. So, this really all started with a Bloomberg article that whose headline was, U.S. Safety Agency to Consider Ban on Gas Stoves Amid Health Fears. 
So let's just uh, deconstruct that a little bit. What is it that gas stoves are admitting? Well, when you're using a gas stove, uh, they use natural gas. Natural gas is actually methane. So just to be clear, first thing is you're burning methane. That's a greenhouse gas. So not great. Contributes to climate change. Mm-hmm. Other thing is that gas stoves emit a bunch of other gases in the process of burning that aren't necessarily super healthy. And for example, nitrogen dioxide is just a natural byproduct of burning methane. Carbon monoxide happens when uh, you don't burn something completely and you get carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, other fine particulates. So all of those things aren't super great for, for health. And we, burn our, we use our natural gas stoves in the house. So that's, that's where this all started. Oh my God. And formaldehyde, I thought that was a hoot. I was like, wait, isn't that what you put in jars and put like shrunken heads into? Isn't that formaldehyde? Is that the same stuff? So, and it's true. Uh, research from as early as the eighties found that the NO2 levels in homes were super high and that NO2 is associated with an increased risk of developing asthma, especially in children. Um, 12% of children's asthma cases are linked to gas stoves. Right. So the Bloomberg article had talked to uh, one of the commissioners of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, a man named Richard Trumka Jr. And what they quoted from him saying was, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. So he's talking about gas stoves, and he he did say this fairly ham-handed thing, I'll say. Oh, my God. Banned. We're going to ban it. Well, you know, strictly speaking, he's not... Wrong. I mean, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is in charge of consumer product safety. It's why you can't buy jarts. Remember the jarts? Remember those? I, I'm sorry. No, the jarts still embedded in my head. I can't remember. Much. Oh my god. Well, you know, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is the reason these things are no longer available. Yeah. Well, they they take the fun out of everything, including apparently gas stoves. What Richard Trumka probably shouldn't have done is immediately uh, raised the specter of the most extreme thing that the CPSC might do, which is ban gas stoves. Because there's a bunch of stuff that they could do that's way less invasive that, that would, is more likely to frankly happen. But whatever. He said, hey, if this product can't be made safe, we can ban it. And uh, predictably, heads exploded. Oh, my God. So my favorite was... Um, U.S. House Representative Dr. Ronnie Jackson. He's from Texas. He's an actual doctor. He's, he's a doctor doctor, isn't he? Like a true physician, right? In fact, wasn't he the physician to multiple U.S. presidents? Uh, yes, he was. Oh, my God. And he tweeted, and I quote, I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. Yeah. So that was a lot. Think he needs to take a deep breath, <laughs> but maybe not that NO2 saturated air that apparently is in his home. So you don't want him to huff uh, his gas stove as yeah, he's, he's I don't think that's a breath. good idea. Right. Nobody's coming for your gas stove, not Ronnie Jackson's gas stove, not your gas stove out oh, there. Oh, thank God. Out there in the WRT community. What could happen and what Trumka should have said is that the CPSC could set reasonable safety standards, sort of like the emission standards on cars, but just for new stoves. They could require new stoves to be safer. 
Right. Or they could publish recommendations or standards on something, not the stove, but maybe a standard on ventilation that should accompany any stove in a house. That's something that anybody who has a gas stove should have is a properly ventilating hood that exhausts to the outside. To get all of those things, those that carbon monoxide, that uh, NO2, your formaldehyde. Don't forget the formaldehyde. Don't forget the formaldehyde. Get all that stuff outside. Um, the fact is, like, if you look around your house, if you have any other gas-burning appliances, they all ventilate to the outside mm-hmm. because we don't want to burn fuel in our homes because of the carbon monoxide and, in the case of this gas stove, uh, because of the NO2, the formaldehydes, and the other things. Perhaps the reasonable thing is to say, yeah, you need to have ventilation in your house if you have a gas stove. It's just like we talked about last time, right? We were talking about ventilation. See how this all ties everything together? It's all coming together. It's just like that rug in the living room, right? And ties everything together. And finally, when it is time to buy a new stove, which for some of you might be soon, uh, consumers should consider switching to these new electric stoves. Now, when we all think electric stove, we think about that, that red hot coil garbagey stove of our childhood. It's not that. These new electric stoves, the really good ones are called induction stoves. They heat up really quickly and they stop producing heat just as quickly. They work through magnetism, believe it or not. It's really cool. It's a coil, a magnetic coil underneath your, your cookware. And what it does, is it actually heats up the pan itself instead of uh, a burner transferring the heat through conduction. So when you turn on your, your gas burner or your old school, the heat of the burner conducts its heat up through the pan and eventually heats things up. This thing actually just makes the pan become hot. It's super efficient and it's a lot easier to regulate. So when you want to go from a raging boil to a simmer and you turn it down, it does it right away. Like those old school ones, right? They, those coils, you turned it down and it took what, 10 minutes for it to, to come down and heat. These actually come down really, really quickly. Um, the downsides are though, is A, for right now they're new tech, so they're still kind of expensive. Um, B, you have to have magnetic cookware. So if you have aluminum cookware, it won't work. So you might have to go out and buy new pots and pans, but cast iron works. And there are some stainless steels that work. And they're, like I said, they're expensive, but that's going to change. Yeah. And actually, with regards to the expense, uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, you can get a substantial rebate if you purchase an induction or an electric stove. The size of that rebate, depending on uh, whether you meet certain criteria, could be up to $1,340. Wow. That's not a, that's not jump change. No, it's not a small amount of money there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if we just... Kind of in summary here, Richard Trumpka, he he probably shouldn't have gone from like zero to 15 uh, right out of the gate like that. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff that can happen besides someone taking your gas stove. But he was bringing to light that there is an actual hazard that's created by burning methane inside your house in an unventilated, you know, way. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure why this household safety thing has become this divisive issue, but... Sure seems to be. It kind of reminds me of the whole toilet kerfuffle from a few years ago. Remember that? Uh, I don't think anybody wanted their toilets taken from their cold dead's hands, as I recall. But it was it's it's along the same line. The, are you talking about the the toilet kerfuffle? It takes fifteen flushes to flush down the documents. Yeah, kerfuffle? something like that. Yeah, oh, that documents. One. Yeah, Sorry, document I, flushing. I forgot about that. Yeah, it, it, that's a kerfuffle in of its own right. Yeah. Okay, John. I'm pretty much 
exhausted, but. Oh, I see what you did there. Well, that's all we have then for today. If you have any home improvement questions, home remodeling, or any other carpentry questions, remember you can email us at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Until then, though, don't try this at home. Try what? Um, any of it. I call it housework. Because it's light work. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In 2019, on a dairy farm just north of Madison, an eight-year-old Nicaraguan boy died in a tragic accident, and a miscommunication after the accident led to the official police report incorrectly stating who was driving the machinery that killed him. Since then, ProPublica investigative journalist Melissa Sanchez and Miriam Jamil have been working to uncover the truth and to share the journey of the boy's father to clear his name. The journalists joined Alan Ruff on today's A Public Affair to share their story. Now, this is just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. And a note, this segment deals with heavy topics, including the death of a child. I found it interesting that there was, in a sense, a stratification based on language in the workforce, uh, that those migrant uh, laborers who had some English took on tasks of management, uh, basically, uh, on the farm. And the flip side of that, of course, is that the, the owners of the farm had little contact, it seems, or no direct relation with with the um, the new incoming migrants who were hired and, and so on, scheduled by uh, their fellow workers. I'm really glad you picked up on that. That's something we notice on this farm and on a lot of other farms. And the, the the stratification sometimes is tied to immigration itself. Like the, some of the the more manager type folks uh, are often Mexican who have been here longer. They're rarely documented. People who are documented do not want to do this work. This is just to be clear. <laughs> this is very much labor that is performed by people who can't legally get a job doing something else. But um, but the, the language issue is really significant. And so, and th- there's a really great researcher named Julie Keller who's written about this. She has a book called Milking in the Shadows. It's focused on, on, on dairy farms in Wisconsin. But she also, also notes this kind of this shift that's happened. And, um, and I mean, at the, and at the top of that stratification is the owners of the farm who, thanks to hired label, labor, are able to live their lives, like Mariam said, are, are able to, to start going to their kids' football games at night. They're able to not have to be so tied to the farm and all, all the work. They can depend on the middle managers to hire, to schedule, et cetera, and then on, on all the other workers to, to do the work. One thing that's interesting with, with this case is that the I mean, middle managers, I'm, I'm making air quotes, it might be too grand of a term too for, for, for what's happening. It's maybe a little bit informal, but the it, it appears that at least in, in the cases that we, we learned about at this farm, that it was this these kind of supervisor immigrants 
who um, trained their new co-workers on how to use this really dangerous machinery. And the the owner of the farm has said in a deposition that he was always around for the training, like training would happen on, under his watch in the daytime. But that's not, we're, but we're, it's unclear what involvement the, the employer actually has in ensuring that the workers know what they're doing, and that is very much tied to the language barrier. Talk about the working and living conditions under which the Rodriguez is labored. You've touched on pay and hours and so on, but talk, for instance, about where father, the father and son lived. Yeah, so uh, Jose Rodriguez and his son Jefferson and two other workers lived in, in a barn they lived in sort of an apartment that was created, uh, that was built above a barn. Um, the owner of the farm uh, in a deposition, Dan Brunig, he described it as something that was meant as more, more of a rest area and not as something that was intended and like fully furnished for like full-time living. But we, so so we worked, we, we haven't actually been to that barn, but we worked really hard to to confirm, you know, what, what happened and whether Jose really lived there and, and multiple people uh, confirmed to us that, that that was the case. So um, there were there were cows that were passing through this barn, hundreds of cows, kind of uh, underneath them. And yeah, the, the two of them lived in a bunk bed and shared a room with another worker. You know, and, and I'm I'm the mom of of two little kids, and so that's the part that really has sucked me in from the beginning. I can't imagine my son living above a barn, constantly smelling manure. And we know we, we heard like that the vibe like is very loud. If you ever go near a milking parlor, you you can hear it. And the and Jose told us the floors would vibrate, um, and it was it was just a constant sound and smell. In some housing, in some situations, like there's like always like dust in the air, and it's unclear whether that's like manure or feed. But what's you're right, Jose and his son's situation wasn't unique, but it's really hard to know what's happening because. From as far as we can tell, there is no regulation, there is no data, there is no, there's no record keeping of employer provided housing for the dairy industry. And that seems to us like a pretty significant regulatory like loophole. And we've heard and we've seen housing that is fine, that it's great. We, we, we know that there's, there's, there's dairy farmers who, whether out of goodwill or because they can afford it more, because they, they make more money, they, they, they put their workers up in apartments in town. And it's not like you know, some big luxurious apartment, but it's like, it's not, uh, it's not a, above a barn, you know, it's not inside of a barn. But we've also been inside of housing that is covered in black mold, that there's, there's giant holes in the ceilings that, that it's housing that is not fit for for any like no American would want their child or would want to live there so so that's that's one area that we're really interested in exploring next especially because there's more kids there's more kids in these situations than maybe there were 10 or 15 years ago and that's because of you know this this shift in, in migration and you have more Central Americans coming in with families so what happened to Jefferson Rodriguez yeah, so Jefferson Rodriguez, he he lived on this farm with his father, like we just talked about. His father was often doing his different shifts, milking cows. So one night, it was the night of July 26, 2019, Jose and another colleague were in the milking parlor doing their work. Um, Jefferson had a, a habit of sort of, you know, he'd spend a lot of time by himself, he'd entertain himself, so he would you know, put on these big rubber boots and and come out of the apartment where he lived and kind of hang out with the workers. It was another worker's first day on that farm. 
he had been trained earlier um, on how to use the the skid steer, which is this uh, machine that kind of looks like a tractor, but is different from a tractor. And it kind of has the it has the function of, of lifting things up. And so it's used to scrape manure uh, out of the different corrals where the cows are kept. And it's this gigantic 6,700 ish pound machine. It's very loud, um, has a huge motor. It's very heavy. Okay. So it was his job, this new worker, to, 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 to start cleaning. He's headed into his second shift. It's now dark. The, an expert inspected this machine a couple months later and said that the lights on the machine did not work. And that's what our reporting shows as well. So it was a very dark environment. This guy's new. It's very loud. Okay. Then Jefferson, who's again, an eight-year-old kid on a farm, at some point he wanders near this skid steer and this worker starts reversing it to just go. He's trying to quickly do his duties and he starts reversing the machine and then he feels it kind of tremble underneath him. He feels that something's a little bit wrong and then he sees this body in front of him and Jefferson has been run over and and that's what happened. That was a public affair host, Alan Ruff, talking to ProPublica journalists, Melissa Sanchez and Miriam Jamil about their newest story about the death of a young boy on a Dane County dairy farm. Hear the full conversation online at wortfm.org. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at six. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. And special thanks to feature contributors, D-Star, John Stephanie, and Ali Bereni, along with Alan Ruff with The Public Affair. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Miss Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget that you can always listen to the local news live on the WORT app, and you can subscribe to it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night. Thank you.